We are at that time of year uh, where it's scary. Every morning, something terrifying happens to me, and that is that I look at the calendar and realize how far through December we are. It's just crazy to think that we're at the 17th already. Next week's Christmas. Um, but this gives us the opportunity to, we're, we're breaking through, free of a series, uh, able to give sort of an ad hoc message. And as, as Pat said, this is something that has been really stirring on my heart throughout the whole year. And it's something that already has wheels on the ground uh, in our church, and particularly for next year. And so what I'm expecting is that this morning at our services, I'm probably going to find a very similar heartbeat in a lot of you uh, this morning about what our priorities are, about what we should be on about as a church. And uh, that is about passing on faith. That is that our faith doesn't just sit with, with us, but that it's, it's part of our responsibility, it's part of our function as a church to be bringing people up in faith, particularly children, but also anyone who would call on the name of the Lord to be able to pass on faith. And so reflecting on this year, uh, it's nice to sort of pause for a moment and to think, Wow, what has God done in our midst over the last 12 months? And if, if you're uh, visiting this morning or if you're new here, we are actually a, we were a church plant four and a half years ago. Is that right? Four and a half? And we are probably no longer allowed to call ourselves a church plant. We're more or less an, an established church. And, and one of the things that, that tells us that is that this year we have had 26 baptisms of our people. And I'm just going to pause and say thank you for, for that response, because what that tells me is that actually you're invested here, actually that you, that you care about the fact that people are taking that step and, and making that decision to get baptised publicly. Uh, you, you know, if you're checking us out and you go, oh, 26, all right, right, cool. But those of you who are excited about that, you know <laughs> God is doing something here and our faith is getting passed on. And that's, that's incredible. So thank you. Thank you for that. Now, of those 26, it's exciting that a number of them are actually people who were mature in their faith, or are mature in their faith, and for whatever reason hadn't been baptised. And so they decided to take that step to publicly declare and, and sort of you know, follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit to do that. It's also exciting that a number of those people were, were people who had grown up in sort of uh, really religious or traditional backgrounds, who decided that as an adult they wanted to make this step on their own, that, that faith wasn't something that they were unwillingly subjected to as a child, but they'd grown into understanding that, no, this is, this is about me and God. This is my relationship with God. And I, I wonder whether there's anyone still in that scenario here this morning. But the thing that really excites, I mean, those are ex all exciting. The thing that most excites me about those 26 baptisms is that quite a number of them have been the young people in our church. And if you saw our annual report published, a, I don't know, a month ago, you would have seen that there were 20 baptisms reported, and I've told you 26. Well, that's because six young people have been baptized in the last month and a half, couple months. And that, that is just absolutely incredible. We had two last week at our evening service, and we also had four who, who came through a program called Foundations. Does anyone know what, what Foundations is? If, if you know uh, River Life Baptist uh, just near us over at 17 Mile Rocks, they run this program called Foundations, which is essentially runs in term four, and it's a course designed to give sort of that late primary, early high school cohort uh, sort of meaningful uh, foundational teachings and experiences in their faith to essentially give them, you know, a, a solid faith. And a number of our young people attended that, and as a result, they decided to get baptised. Uh, now, they chose to do that at River Life with that cohort of, of kids that they went through, and that was a really meaningful and a really special time. And so we just want to pause for a moment and thank God 
for the fruit that he has borne in the hearts of our people, for the work that he's been doing. And we want to celebrate with those families who've had their young people take significant steps. So the, the, the Nitschke family, the, the Ridout family, the Kellen family, the Nell family, uh, and last week the, the Stanger family and the, and the, um, the Pence family, you know, we, we absolutely celebrate and congratulate uh, those steps. Um, now, I just want to flag this because it's probably not said publicly enough, but we have absolutely no issues that four of our young people chose to get baptised at another church. Okay, because the goal here is not that everything happens in these four walls. Right? The goal here is passing on faith. Right? So we don't care that this isn't the most used baptismal in the city. Though if God wants to do that, please, Lord, amen, we will, we will absolutely accept that. But the win here is that faith is passed on. And I actually had the opportunity a number of weeks ago to just uh, talk to uh, Patria, Pastor Patria, who's the kids pastor over at River Life, and just sincerely thank her for the impact that that uh, course had made in the life of our young people. And you know what? I'm convinced that when Paul talks about the body of Christ, and he says that each person has, is a different member with a different function, some are a hand, some are a foot, some are an eye, whatever, I believe that that applies to the level of the individual, that all of us have unique gifts that, that come and contribute to the functioning of this body of Christ, but I believe that it also works at the level of different churches, right? And so that each different church has its own uh, function, which is a, a reflection of the people that God has gathered there. It's a reflection of the gifts that are at that particular place and, and the resources and the heart that God has placed upon those people. And so some churches are really well-resourced, like River Life, and they can put on a, a program like that which blesses a bunch of churches in the area, and we absolutely support that. And we as a church over the last four and a half years are kind of growing into what we know to be our own identity, what God has made us to be, and, and we know that that is actually as, as a resourcing church. God in his wisdom has decided that there are a number of uh, gifts and uh, wisdom and, and potential here to be able to create resources that actually bless uh, churches much more broadly. So one of our things that we say here is, is get it right and give it away. So when we innovate and when we create and when we find something that God works through, we say, all right, everybody else, you can have this. This is great. And I'm always very encouraged when we uh, have a guest speaker from another church of Christ. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but I definitely notice it because almost every time we have a guest preacher from within churches of Christ, they, they thank this congregation for how the ministry that goes on here is blessing them in their church. Has anyone else noticed that? And I think that we need to just really take some encouragement from that, that that is how God is using this church. And it's partly, to a large res uh, respect, due to the generosity of the people here. We have an incredibly generous and, and warm-hearted congregation here. So can I just thank you for that? God is using that, and there is fruit coming from that, not just in these four walls, but also uh, much more broadly. And that is really exciting. And Liam and I actually have the opportunity at the moment. Uh, it's, it's probably the favorite task on my list, endless list of things to do. Uh, but we have the opportunity to write a course similar to the ones that, that uh, Pat has written, which, by the way, if you're not aware of them, um, have been sort of... Uh, really refreshing the landscape of, of spirit-filled Christianity in, in Brisbane over the last, I don't know, decade or more. But we've got the opportunity to write one of those specifically targeted at a young adult audience. Uh, and that's really exciting. That's going to be running uh, early next year from uh, late February through to early April, and it includes a retreat in March. So that's really exciting. But this idea of passing on faith has never been so forefront in my mind as important as when I had kids. And now I've realized, you know what, these stakes are super high. 
The stakes are so high that these kids grow up knowing the Lord Jesus, that they grow up to be able to make a faith step and, and faith decisions of their own. And so just to, just to briefly prove the importance of that to you from Scripture, uh, we're going to go to Genesis where God first speaks to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. Now, you know, Abraham is kind of like the, the big dog in uh, the, you know, the one religion, worship of the one true God. He was the, the father of faith, the, the first person that God established the, the Jewish nation through. He gave him a promise. And um, just to save the time, we won't read the whole thing. But the important part here is where God says, I'll make you a great nation Right, because the whole point of this promise is that Abraham's going to have a son and that that son is going to uh, produce a great nation out of him. You see, God took him from where he was and he brought him into relationship with him, not only for his own sake, but for the sake of the generations after him. So it has always been in God's mind that worship of him, relationship with him, love, a loving relationship with him is meant to be one of generational blessing. And that's why I always take the opportunity to, to tell those of us who have grown up in a Christian family, like, you, are, you have a much better story than you think. You don't need to have, like, this wild, amazing testimony because actually you're living out the testimony that God intended, which is for the blessing of relationship with him to pass from generation to generation. And to just prove this a little bit further, if we head to Deuteronomy 6, uh, this is considered one of the most important passages in uh, in the mind of the Jews, this is considered one of the most important passages. And, and when Jesus is asked in the New Testament, what is the most important commandment? It's actually this passage that he quotes from, not any the Ten Commandments. He quotes from this passage. Deuteronomy 6, from verse 1, says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, generational blessing by keeping all these statutes and these commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then we get to these verses in verse 4 to 9 which actually are so significant that they have their own name in the, in the practice of Jewish faith and that's called the Shema. Now when uh, Jewish people would get together Almost at, at every occasion, they would start their proceedings by reciting from memory these uh, verses uh, called the Shema. It's kind of like a, a, a doctrinal statement. It, it, it's a marker of orthodoxy, but it's also a marker of priority. This is the most important thing for us to remember as people who know and worship God. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a theological statement. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's a statement of worship. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so you can see that this would have been constantly reiterated to them that actually one of the most important things that we do is to pass on this faith to our children. And there's a lot of practical things that they recommend in that passage to be able to do that. But we know as New Testament people and, and as people of the new covenant that being in relationship with God is no longer about simply being descended from Abraham, but it's about anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord in faith. And so we have a responsibility to pass on faith. And, and if you are not a parent, or if your parenting days are behind you, or if you don't plan on being a parent, 
then uh, you're not getting off the hook. So sorry if you thought you were getting a sermon that wasn't uh, about you. But every single one of us has the responsibility to live a life that is passing on faith. Whether that means that we are volunteering in the kids' ministry, whether it means that we're volunteering in the youth, whether it means that we're supporting and encouraging parents, or whether it means that we're witnessing to the people in, in our world, in our, in our workplace, or in our street, or, or in our shopping center, whatever it is, we have a responsibility to be passing on faith. And so let me ask you a question. Is your life passing on faith? Is there room in your world, in your practice of Christianity, for the faith that God has placed in your heart to be passed on to the people around you, whether that's to your children, to your family, or to other people more broadly? Or is your practice of Christianity entirely about your own needs and your own satisfaction? Are the reasons that you come to church so that you can hear an encouraging message and have your own spiritual tank filled? So that you can express yourself in worship in, in ways that sort of feel nice to you and, and relate to you and songs that relate to you? Is it so that you can spend time with the people that you like? Or is it because we've got good coffee? Are they the primary reasons that we're here or are we here to pass on our faith? We have a mandate biblically for every single one of us to consider ourselves as a multiplier as somebody who doesn't just receive faith, but who passes it on, to be a disciple of Jesus who disciples somebody else, who then disciples somebody else, so that this generational blessing can continue. And so let me ask you, are you in that chain of generational blessing being passed from one person to the next, or does the blessing of God stop with you? And the hoarding of the, of the joy and the, and the love and the blessing that God has given, does it stop with you? Or are you passing it on? Because that's what we're about. If we want to live out a, ch a church that is, that is biblical, that honors God, then we are about passing on our faith. Now, last week we had uh, a couple of baptisms in the evening service, and I hope that um, Mitch doesn't mind me sort of uh, examining his uh, response as, as a dad he got to baptize his uh, daughter, which was a, a beautiful moment. But I related so much to the emotions that were going on at that time. Because as a parent, you, I don't know, for me, there's like this sort of fuzzy ball that sits about here in, in my stomach, which is a, just a knot of emotions when it comes to thinking about passing on faith to my children. Part of it is, is incredible love, that I love these kids so much and that I want them to know the love that I have found in God. But part of it also is fear. What happens? If they don't, and I know that many people have experienced that in their own lives. Another part of it is, is desperation. You know what? I would just do absolutely anything and everything if it meant that these kids grew up to know the Lord Jesus. And then another part of it is helplessness. What can I actually do? The last thing that I want to do is to turn them off faith and, and, and for them to, to, to run the other way. And I know that in the end, I, I'm not after a, a set of you know, conforming to, to this or conforming to that. They need to make a decision themselves. We've left behind that kind of religion which is all about looking the right way, doing the right things, because we know that that's not relationship with God. And this ball that sits inside of us can cause us to do some funny things. 
And you know, when Mitch was able to baptize his daughter last week, I saw just the incredible joy that he had to be able to do that. I saw the love that he had for his daughter. I saw the pride that he had in his daughter's story and the step that she had made. And I also saw the relief that it had happened. But this incredible, you know, powerful ball of emotions can cause us to do some funny things. We, in, in our desperation for our kids and for other people to know Jesus, we can sometimes set up some unhelpful goalposts and unhealthy expectations. We, we set out the success criteria. And this is a generational issue, what I would like to call a, a generational issue. And that is that the established generations, so that's us, we're the ones who kind of like are running the church at the moment. The established generations get to decide what success looks like in the faith. And that's, in a lot of senses, right, because that's the position that God has, has given to us. But it can go the wrong way. A couple of categories that, that we can tend to establish some unhealthy and unhelpful boundaries here. The first one is in religious practice. We set up a success criteria to say that if my children grow up to be church attenders, if they grow up to uh, read the Bible, if they grow up to be volunteering in the church, if they grow up to, to follow these certain uh, rituals or to you know, put the right stickers on the back of their car, um, the, the fish ones, not like the this is my stick family ones, then we've successfully passed on faith. And now the, the tricky thing here is that those are good things. I mean, apart from the stickers, it's a bit... Anyway, those are good things. And we want our children to do those things. We want them to, to grow up attending church, to be making those decisions, to be reading their Bible, to be praying. But those do not themselves evidence a faith in God. And if we're looking to those things to look for the proof of that faith, then we're looking in the wrong place. And if we're teaching our kids that that is what it means to know and love God, then we're failing them. They need to come into a relationship with the living God. And so we walk this, this tension. And, and the second category of things that we can do is to expect a level of moral behavior. To say that if, if my children grow, grow up to be obedient, if they grow up to, to submit to the rules that I have for them, if they grow up to be uh, making good moral choices, they hang out with the right people, they don't smoke, drink, or do drugs... If they, they get involved in, in charity work out there, then that means that we've successfully passed on faith. Once again, wonderful things that we want our children to be growing up and doing, but in and of themselves do not evidence a real faith. In fact, there are some people out there in the world that are doing much better than a lot of us in that respect. All right, and, and going to church and, and being moral and doing those things no more makes you a Christian than sitting in an oven makes you a biscuit. We cannot teach our children that that is the substance of their faith. They need a relationship with the living God. And look, there's a third category that I want to explore, but we're going to take a look in Scripture because I think it explains it much better than I will. And that is from the book of Ezra. My son's name is Ezra, so it's nice to preach from the book of Ezra. It's kind of there in your Bible, if you're looking. Um, I know that you've probably not read Ezra in the last couple of months slash years. Uh, Ezra and chapter 3, and let me give you the context here, because the people of Israel have been taken out of their land, and they've gone into uh, exile, 
And at this point in time, the, the Persian king has been prompted by God to allow them to go back. And one of the things that they have to do when they go back is to rebuild the temple because their temple, which was the, the center, the establishment of their worship of God, it was where they had connection with God and relationship with him was destroyed. And so part of their mandate in going back is to rebuild this temple. And it's under the leadership of a guy called Zerubbabel. Say that 10 times fast. And they are attempting to, to rebuild what was there before. And this is what happens when the foundation of that temple is laid in uh, chapter 3 and from verse 10. It says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And we have this puzzling scene where, where they've laid the foundations for the new temple, and there's an enormous celebration from all of these people who have come. They've, they've spent a generation in exile, and they've come back to rebuild this, this temple, to make a new temple. And so they're celebrating, you know, we've made steps, we're doing something here, that the foundations are laid, and yet those who saw the previous temple, those who had a, a, a meaningful prior experience of God in their own story and in their own life, looked at that new, temp, uh, that new foundation for the temple, and they wept. They wept because it was different to what they knew. They wept because they mourned the loss, the fading away of that which was meaningful to them and in their story. You see, the temple was the place that people would go to worship God. It was the primary expression of how somebody would relate to God, of how they would see the, the embodiment of all of the promises that God had made them as, as a people of God. That would be done at the temple. And you know what? That first temple was something else. It was built in the days of Solomon when Israel was at its you know, highest level of wealth. All of the details had been meticulously given by God to say, this is what it's going to look like. They got all of the best craftsmen around. They imported wood from you know, ages away in, in Lebanon to, to make it uh, this incredible temple. And it was absolutely glorious. And these, this, these people are looking at this new temple and they're saying, why are we shouting for joy? This thing's terrible <laughs> compared to what we knew previously. And you see, one of the things that we can do in order to unhelpfully set boundaries or, or goalposts for the next generation, is to expect them to repeat our experience of God. We expect them to replicate the same experiences and stories and scenarios that we found meaningful. And you know, for me, that's, I, I grew up in my meaningful, I, I grew up, of course I grew up, well, what am I thinking? Good one, Sandy. When I was growing up, I'm still growing up, there you go, think, think twice before you speak. Meaningful experiences in Sandy's life. Here we go. They all happened on Scripture Union camps where I got to, to be around people and, and experience and encounter God. 
And I would love, desperately love for my children to have those same experiences, but I would be foolish to hope that they only have those experiences and instead of that they meet the same God that I met at those moments. And so we can expect that they repeat the things that were meaningful to us because God related to us in that way, because God spoke to us through that particular thing. And this can extend to the way that we run church, the way that any of this happens, the the amount of lights, the amount of smoke or lack of smoke, the drums, you know, the the seats, whatever, all of those things. And, And we forget the fact that from generation to generation, there's always been something that people have gone, that's not just poor, it's unbiblical. Well, we've decided the drums are not unbiblical, so we have them here on stage. But each generation has to deal with this new issue that actually that's not the way that I like it because it's not the way that we did it. That doesn't mean that it's not right. We confuse things that are in fact a part of our experience and our tradition and that are temporary and that are culturally, culturally relevant. We confuse them with something that's actually been mandated by Scripture. But actually the scriptural mandate for what happens here in, in these you know, hour and 15 minutes is... is actually very small. And so what we need to do is to allow the next generation to to define and to express their own ways of relating to God. And if I can just call out the, the elephant in the room, worship music. Everybody has their own preference of what the worship is like and of what songs we sing. And we sort of go, you know what, I have this catalogue of, of songs that were really meaningful to me, that formed me, that were part of my experience, and they were awesome, and they were, they were great songs. You know, why don't we sing those beautiful hymns anymore? They've got such beautiful melodies, they've got a, such beautiful lyrical content, and that's true. That's absolutely true. That's why they were meaningful. That's why they touched your heart in such a way. But at the same time, if we are demanding and expecting that the next generation pick up those things, then we're not actually passing on faith. We're passing on the relics of our experience. And I've said this before, but if the next generation is not writing new songs to praise God, then we fail to pass on faith. The Bible tells us many times in the Psalms that we need to sing a new song to the Lord, and two reasons for that. First one is that no amount of songs, millions, billions, trillions of songs, could ever express really how much God is worth. And so we need to just go for it. Go for it all the time. If we could write a new song every single day, we still wouldn't get to the end of God's glory. And the second reason is that each new generation needs to rediscover God and needs to pour out their praise in a way that reflects who they are. And we just happen to live, well, I'm sorry, this is part of the struggle of us, right? We just happen to live in a world where things change very quickly. Musical landscape, musical tastes change very quickly. And so, you know, I feel, I feel for us because the change in song style and the change in all of that just happens so quickly. It feels like I was just enjoying that and then now it's gone. Right, I've got this whole bunch of CDs and I just can't even buy a CD player anymore. It changes that quickly. But let me tell you that we need to prioritize. We need to let the primary function of this be to pass on faith. Every generation is going to have to tackle that at some stage. The generation that's enjoying you know, songs that, are, that reflect who they are and their style, when they grow up, they're going to have to deal with the same thing. It's going to change. They're going to have to let the new generation come up with new songs, and I shudder to think what they might be like 
But you know what? They will bring glory to God. You know, I had, uh, I've been running a ministry called Gents Camp, which is a ministry, a camping ministry for teenage boys, and I've learned this lesson because I took over that ministry from the guy who founded it. He, he grew it. It grew to this uh, incredible size and, and number, and it was just doing awesome things. And so I was part of that ministry in sort of the first heyday, kind of that first amazing season. I'll tell you, the stuff that we did, uh, we wouldn't get away with it now. We used to have, uh, well, we didn't have as much, you know, risk policy and, and all that back then. But I tell you, we, every uh, year we would have a bonfire and the site manager would collect wood for us all year round. And he would build up this massive pile. And I'm telling you, you won't believe me when I say how big it is, but I'll, I'll, there's a photo I have to dig up. But the diameter of the rubble that was burned was about eight metres in diameter. And it was somewhere between three and four metres high. And so when that thing went up, that was not a bonfire. We called it a towering inferno. And the flames licked, I don't know, it's, it, we were trying to you know, figure out a way to calculate how far the flames were going, but I reckon like four or five stories into the air. It was unreal, unbelievable. And we got that every year. And these days, under new management, we are, the policy is that it cannot be more than a two-by-two-metre uh, know, pile of wood, which is very disappointing. And you know what? We, we get leaders come back on this camp who've you know, moved on to the next season of their life and they've just got such you know, warm feelings for the experience of God that they had. They're like, you know what? I'm going I'm to come back. I'm going to come back and, and see what it's like and, and pour myself into that. It's kind of like a swan song, you know. And I hear them have the same conversation every time. They get together and they go, it's just not what it used to be. I remember the games that we used to play, they were, they were like this. And people really you know, broke bones in those games. It just doesn't happen anymore, or the worship was, was so much better, or, or you know, the culture was you know, much more like, lively, or whatever it might be. And I have to remind myself that they are relying on their experience, but what they're, they're failing to do is to listen to what the boys are saying. The boys who are 13, 14, 15, listen to what they're saying. They are still saying, this is the best week of my life. They are still saying, God is moving. They're still saying, God is meeting me here. And you see, we're too caught up in it looking the same way that we knew and not listening enough to going, are they experiencing God? Are they encountering God? You know what the difficult thing is? Objectively, the new temple was bad compared to the first. That's difficult. But there is an answer to that. And we're actually going to go to the book of Haggai to find it. Did you know that Haggai is a book? It's, it's not a Jewish recipe. The prophet uh, Haggai actually speaks to these very people, to these people who were building the temple. He says in, in Haggai chapter 2 from verse 3, he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Who is of the generation? You were here before the temple was destroyed. You saw how it was. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? It's, it's rubbish compared to that. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of the hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. 
Haggai says to these people, I get it. I get it. The temple is not as good as it was before, but here's, here's what. Take courage. It's all right. And work. Get to work. Get alongside these young people who are building something which reflects their relationship with God, reflects their outpouring of, of emotion and connection with him. Be strong and work. And that's our job. That's our job is, is to consider that the next generation needs to know God at all costs. They need to know God. And it's, these people are never condemned for feeling that way. These people are never told, oh, you, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be sad about that. They're saying, just take courage. I get it. It's okay. Those things were meaningful for you. There's a real meaning, a real reason they were meaningful for you. But be strong and work. You know, the rest of that passage in Haggai, well, actually, before we, before we move on, that passage tells us that it's actually always about the presence of God. He says that, God is still in your midst. You confused the temple to be the thing that was eternal, but it was actually the presence of God that was eternal. And the temple was, was temporary. And so we need to understand that it's about God's presence. And there is one thing that we are after in our children and in the next generation and in the other people who come to know faith. There is one thing. Forget all of the, the religious practice, though we, that's good and we want them to get there. Forget all of the moral behavior, though that's good and we want them to get there. But the one thing that we can look for is that they receive the Holy Spirit. We want this next generation to know and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? If they do that, they will be okay. It's not about us. It's about God looking after them. And we need to learn to see the beauty in them expressing what uh, the Holy Spirit looks like for them. And we pursue that goal recklessly because it is about the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the rest of the passage of Haggai gives us this beautiful uh, picture where he says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while. This is the promise, by the way. This is the, the promise that he's making. He's saying, I'm saying take courage and work. Why? Because you need to look forward to actually what's happening in the future. There is a much bigger promise and a much better temple and a much better result coming. And here's what it is. Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts, this house, the one that you're seeing, not the one that you used to know, this one with the smaller foundation and the less gold, this house is going to be filled with glory. Now, obviously, a theological point we understand as New Testament people that this is talking about us, the people of God, right? that we will be filled with his spirit. It's also talking about the future day when we will see God in his glory because God says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And so what he's saying, and I'm going to struggle to make this point, so I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will, will speak to your heart at the moment. What he's saying is that the deficiency in what you see here is actually a sign of the glory that is going to come. The fact that you can see how imperfect this is is my lesson to you, older generations, that the glory you knew is going to be exceeded in the future. And in fact, that it's never been about this temple. It's never been about the, all of the things that we hold so dear in our own experience of God. It's always been about the future glory 
that God is going to bring. And so what do we do? What do we do with the fact that these are meaningful experiences, that these are beautiful songs? That the experiences that we had in, in Girls and Boys Brigade, in Crusades, in Beach Mission, whatever it might be, which for whatever reason just don't seem to be hitting the mark with this next generation, what do we do with that? Well, we need to accept that they are a flower. You know, I, I remember being a, a stubborn young uh, single person being like, you know, why do people buy flowers? Like, they're simply a waste of money, right? It's expensive. Somebody's just arranged them, put them in a vase, and then they die. What's the point of that? But I learned a very meaningful lesson from my wife, and that is that <laughs> the beauty of a flower is in the fact that it fades. It's, it's there to be appreciated for a season. And so we, we need to understand that those things are precious, that they are really meaningful and really beautiful, but they were only ever intended to last a season. You see, the, the glory of the flower is actually borrowed from the one that created it. It borrows that glory for a moment, and there'll be a new flower. There'll be new things, and it'll be much better for our souls if we can learn to appreciate the new flowers that come. And that if we're not looking for the relics of our own experience, but if we're looking for the next generation to know the Holy Spirit and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what do we do? We be strong and we work. Your contribution is not over. If, if the primary energy of the church is not going into the, to the ways that you like things, your contribution isn't over. We can still be looking for the next generation, teaching them, raising them up in the faith, doing all of those practical things that the book of Deuteronomy was talking about. The next generation needs to know God and receive his Holy Spirit. So let's accept that success doesn't look like them receiving what we had, but that they are filled with God's presence, that they find new ways to love him, to adore him, and to reach the lost. You know, as a church, what we are going to be doing uh, in the next season to, to be able to do this is uh, a number of things, basically anything that we can think of. And I'm not going to promise you that it's all going to work. I'm not going to promise you that, hey, you know, this is the, the best thing ever, but I'm going to promise you we're going we're to try and we're going to die on this hill that the next generation needs to know God. So we're going to have more social uh, connection events for our kids to get together, for our families to get together, to build meaningful relationships, because I'm convinced that they need to develop those relationships with peers in the church in order for them to, to stay solid as they move forward. We're going to have a, a camping trip next year um, just after Easter, if you're that way uh, inclined. Bring your, bring your families along. Great memories are, are created in, in things like that. We're going to be intentionally resourcing uh, parents and, and putting on things that allow them to uh, actually upskill in how they, how they do things. Not, not prescriptively, but to reflect and go, actually, I need to think about this and, and to take my children on that journey. So we're going to be announcing uh, particular days where, where we can get people to come in and, and speak, people who are experts on, on that topic, uh, and help us to do that. Uh, we're going to have more volunteering in kids' ministry. In the name of the Lord Jesus, <laughs> amen. We are not going to stop beating that drum. I'm sorry, church, because that is wildly important, that the next generation know faith. And Elise is not in the room. She's coming in with the kids because we're going to pray a blessing over them in the moment, but I'm sure that she would have amened to that. We need more people 
in kids' ministry. We need to, to, to do things that innovate, do things that understand, that seek to understand what makes this next generation tick and how can we reach them with the gospel. This is where our energy is going to go, a large portion of our energy, and we all need to be involved. And, you know, just as a a couple of uh, things to to you parents, be proactively planning for the development of your child's faith because at some point they're going to be sitting in church. And if they've not navigated a journey to that point, hello. (laughs) This morning when we dropped off our kids to Elise, like it was basically a private babysitting session. They were the only ones there. It was brilliant. Parents, we need to be proactively planning for the steps of faith that our children are going to take, right? Because eventually they're going to have to transition to where you are now. And if they've gone their whole life without ever experiencing or trying to engage with what this is, then that's going to be very difficult for them. The other thing is be conscious of how much your child's activity is developing them spiritually. We pay a lot of attention, we get a lot of energy, and we're in a wonderful society where we can give them every opportunity academically, sport-wise, music-wise, but are we doing the same spiritually? Are we conscious of how much of our child's you know, weekly time is forming them spiritually, of what we are doing in, in, in order to do that as well? So I wonder, we've got our kids here. Hey, kids. How you going? It's good to have you. Did you know that um, what we've been talking about today is how important you guys are? Yeah, you feel special. I bet you feel special, don't you? You're three. <laughs> yes, you are. And so... What we want to do is, I just want to tell you a couple of things, and then as a church, we're just going to to pray for you. Okay, so the first thing that I want to tell you is that you're a part of God's family, and that this is a family which forms a small part of God's family, that you're uh, sons and daughters of God by faith. I also want to tell you that the Lord Jesus, who is good, loves you most that this room loves you a lot and the Lord Jesus loves you even more than that. So we're going to pray for you. Kids, are you okay? Do you want to come up and stand with me here? Hey, buddy. And church, why don't you stand as well? Let's reach out our hands and and bless these guys. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for these children. We thank you for the gift that it is. And and God, you've revealed yourself. You've called yourself Father. You've called yourself Dad because of how much you love kids and how much you love bringing them up in the faith. And so we just want to bless these children. We want to bless them that they would be raised to know you that they would be raised to know the Lord Jesus, not just things about him, but actually know them. That as they lie on their beds at night, they would feel your presence and know that they're safe and that they're loved. We pray that you would bring them faith, that they would know and trust you. We pray, Lord God, that they would receive your spirit and that your Holy Spirit would teach them how to do things that we have no idea things that are beautiful and wonderful and creative and that bring you glory and that bring them fulfillment and satisfaction. We pray that they would grow in stature and faith and wisdom. We pray that you would bless them with the fruits of the Spirit. We pray that you would bless them with gifts and we pray that you would bless them with a love for you 
and a love for your church. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much, kids. You guys can stay for our last song if you want.